Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, January 24th. Is the federal government's just transition stance on the oil and gas industry a death sentence for Alberta's energy sector? We tackle the timely topic with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. Next, we discuss Premier Danielle Smith's appointment of Preston Manning to lead the provincial COVID-19 response review. We get the thoughts of MRU political science professor Dwayne Bratt. Are fewer people looking at the trades as a career option? We discuss the current state of enrollment and the benefits of working in a trade with Jim Zoutner, Dean of Trades at SAIT. And finally, Apple's AirTags have grown in popularity over the past couple of years. Now the tech giant is facing some stiff competition. We catch up with the gadget guy, Mike Yanni, for details on the new Google tracking tags. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith believes just transition will destroy Albertans' livelihoods. So... Where does Canada stand on the path towards net zero by 2050? And will this energy transition be a death blow for Alberta? Joining us to discuss is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning. This week on the West Block, you spoke with the president of Sonovus Energy and the president of Pathways Alliance. How do these major players in the energy sector feel about the Just Transition plan? I think that there's clearly some concerns, um, and they talk about the fact that, that they say, look, we realize the oil and gas industry has to change. Um, emissions have to change. They are committed to trying to find a way forward, and their plan for that, of course, is something called carbon capture. And, and there's some questions around whether carbon capture can do enough, whether it can happen fast enough, whether it's efficient enough. Um, they are convinced that they have a way to do that, and they say they acknowledge that things have to change, but they disagree that oil and gas are uh, being transitioned off any time in the near future. They don't think that that is a realistic timeline. And they seem concerned about the amount of detail that's available for what these green jobs look like. So these are two very different sort of uh, visions of the future. The oil and the gas industry, and to a degree the Alberta government, who say, uh, look, oil and gas will continue to exist. They will pump out actually more and more in coming years, but they will offset that by being able to do carbon capture, so those cleaner emissions, versus the federal government who says, no, we need to get off oil and gas to get to net zero as soon as possible. And in order to do that, we're going to actually, that, that just transition phrase, transition people out of working in oil and gas and into environmental and green jobs. Um, and there's still a lot of question marks, just like there's some question marks around whether or not the oil and gas industry can do carbon capture effectively at a, at a very large scale. There are questions about whether the federal government really has a detailed plan for what a just transition would look like, how they're going to create green jobs in Alberta. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have moved to Alberta to work in oil and gas. So if that goes away or green jobs in oil and gas aren't there, will industry invest the same way? How do they ensure that industry is still attracted to Alberta instead of somewhere else for those green jobs and maintains those jobs in Alberta for the economy there. And the other thing that was raised by the president of Sinovus, Alex Porvay, on our show, was the amount of tax revenue that comes from oil and gas and the concerns that they have uh, that they think uh, perhaps the federal government hasn't fully thought through about reducing oil and gas significantly and what that would mean for income uh, to the Canadian federal government and, and programs that are you know right now benefiting from billions of dollars in, in those tax revenues. Mercedes, you, you mentioned the term just transition. It's, it seems that those words maybe were poorly chosen in terms of, you know, calling it that because I think that's the big argument, right? The just transition, it seems like a, it's almost a throwaway and that seems to have people, you know, have really gotten people's backs up, doesn't it? 
It, it does, and I think that, you know, you've also got politicians spinning on both sides of this, um, and, and they have very different visions of the future, and there hasn't really been a clear explanation, and there's been lots of obfuscating uh, from politicians at the provincial and the federal level about what happens to people who are working in oil and gas and, and what's realistic going forward. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's really a lot of specifics at this point that are being laid out by either side about how this is going to happen. But the reality is the environment is a very serious concern, and oil and gas is a huge emitter, uh, and oil and gas has to deal with that, and the province of Alberta has to deal with that. On the other hand, oil and gas is something we're still very much using right now. Uh, the president of Sonovis was saying, look, what happened in Western Europe is really a cautionary tale of trying to transition too fast, too quickly, and the federal government hasn't been able to give people a clear path forward for what that just transition looks like. Um, and I suspect, too, that some people remember, um, I'm here in Ontario, but I'm from Alberta, uh, but for a lot of folks here in Ontario, with what happened with the manufacturing sector, there was a very strong attempt made to transition jobs. It didn't always work, though, because sometimes it's not as simple as, as taking jobs from one industry and putting them into another. So I, I think, obviously, there's a lot of anxiety around this, and naturally, people who work in the field or who have family who work in the field or who work in adjacent fields where their career depend on it want answers from both sides on, on what realistically could happen and what a timeline for that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if just transition or the uh, you know path toward net zero will be discussed, uh, but uh, also nationally uh, this uh, week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and MPs meeting. What do we know that is on the agenda during the retreat? Well, I think the biggest thing that we're expecting to see on the agenda is health care. Uh, we're hearing that they may be close to a deal with the provinces and on it's something that is on every Canadian's mind right now, um, and it is an issue across every province and territory in Canada to varying degrees. So I think that that is really something um, there's going to be a lot of discussion about. I think that you will also hear discussion about things like Ukraine, uh, about the economy. Um, Pocketbook issues are a really big one with Canadians right now because people are just feeling that pinch of inflation uh, and, and what decision the federal government decides to take on how they handle inflation. And of course, all of this is going to inform the federal budget, which we are expecting sometime in the spring. It's always a bit of a question mark when I say spring. It can happen in February and it can happen in late April. Usually it's March, but there's a pretty big time frame there. Um, and they're about to start really getting serious about some of those consultations with different groups and industries and stakeholders. Um, So this will be a bit of a a political setup for the Prime Minister to talk to his cabinet about these big issues and for them to start to strategize going forward. And frankly, the other big question is, you know, it it feels like they're kind of in a bit of a campaign mode. Is that uh, simply a factor of them dealing with Pierre Polyev, who also feels like he's in a campaign mode, and two leaders who have very different views of the world, but in some ways um, similar approaches to how they run their politics publicly, uh, or are the Liberals starting to look at, is this a a time that they want to consider going before 2025? And I'm not suggesting uh, an immediate election, but the feeling in Ottawa is more and more that the NDP are are seen by the federal Liberals as relatively weak right now. They're not sure the Conservatives can win because Polyev is still new. Um, Justin Trudeau very much wants to campaign against Pierre Polyev. He is not planning to go anywhere, according to any of the Liberal sources I've spoken to. Um, Of course, they can stay in government until 2025. The NDP is committed to prop this government up until then. But the question will be whether the Liberals want to wait that long for an election. And I think that's uh, that's going to be something that they're talking about as well. Mm, interesting. Uh, let's leave Canada and go to Afghanistan. Also on the West Block, he spoke with an Afghan journalist after the assassination of a former Afghan MP. 
we've heard stories, but what does it seem, what's life become like for women in Afghanistan since the Taliban took power? Well, the, the woman who you're mentioning is now one of our colleagues at Global, which we're honored to have her. She's working for us uh, here in the Ottawa Bureau. She was an anchor with Tolo News Network, which uh, some of your listeners might remember, especially if they were military and deployed. We all saw them there. Uh, she was a political journalist. And she spent the past week speaking to Afghan women who are, who are still in Afghanistan. Um, and she described it to me as being in prison. The women are not allowed to engage in society. They cannot leave the house without a man at all. They are forbidden to be educated, to go to school, to go to university. Uh, they have to be completely covered. They are not allowed to work. Uh, there's been a really horrific situation where Canadian NGOs had to fire their local staff because the government here was worried about the Taliban getting taxes off of those salaries. Um, and if they did work, they would be killed. So it, it's just really uh, a, a horrific situation for women who are there in Afghanistan, and that's for all women, for high-profile women who in any way were publicly involved with the previous government, like female members of parliament. Uh, these women were telling our, our colleague Shagufa that what is happening is there are lists being made, and basically like Taliban hunter-killer squads who have your photograph, your name, your biographical information, it is sent out to their cells in each province and their governors in, in each province, and that they are going door-to-door looking for people. So these women are having to move constantly and be in hiding, and we spoke to one of them, played a clip, but we had to be careful about disguising her voice. We couldn't say who she was or where she was because any of that information right now uh, could get these women killed. They are trying to come to Canada. They are telling Shagufa that they apparently have the approval, in some cases, uh, from Canadian authorities. In others, they haven't heard back. But right now, the Canadian government will not pull people directly out of Afghanistan. There are commercial flights that go in and out every day. But the Canadian government will not put somebody on one of those flights. Uh, and Tim Laidler, who is with the Veterans Transition Network, which is a group of Canadian veterans trying to help Afghans who work for Canada and other vulnerable people, says, you know, it's $2,000 to have enough money to go across into Pakistan at very high risk. And a lot of people simply can't do that. So he's calling on the Canadian government to help get some of these uh, women and vulnerable people out directly on these civilian flights that are leaving Kabul daily uh, to just bring them to Canada before there's another assassination. Wow. wow. Heavy story. Uh, thanks for your time this morning, Mercedes. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Well, I wanted to help uh, Canadians use our political imagination and uh, what if there was a commission? What if the you know, desire for freedom morphed into something broader than the truckers? But I, I do believe this thing has been mismanaged. Well, that was a clip from an interview Preston Manning did in November with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy regarding a fictionalized COVID commission report that he wrote. Now, Preston Manning has been appointed to head up a COVID-19 inquiry for the Alberta government. Joining us to talk about it is Duane Bratt, Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University. Good morning to you, Duane. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Sue. Okay, first of all, this fictional report is awfully confusing to me. Why did he write it to begin with? <laughs> um, that's, that's a very good question. And I think this was at a time when there was no inquiry there still is yet no inquiry uh into covid and, and the government's response i think there should be but instead of dealing with that he decided to write an imaginary piece that allowed him to put in all of his pet ideas for example the creation of a new populist conservative party you know kind of like the reform party 
you know, and uh, this has been something that Manning has talked about since the late 60s, about the frequent need for conservatives to change their political vehicle, their political vessel. So he put that in there. But it's a combination of a fictional account and what he hopes would occur, um, such as, um, you know, attacking the Trudeau government, supporting the convoy, uh, and in the end, in his recommendations, he's going, you know, the Canadian people have to make a choice about whether they should just fire everybody involved or whether they should hold them financially liable and criminally responsible. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to Thursday, when he mm-hmm. is now chairing an, Alber- an official Alberta inquiry, you wonder what is the impact of a report he's already written on a report he's about to write. All right, so let's let's talk about yeah the current role and uh, being tapped by Premier Danielle Smith. Uh, the, you know the, the detractors are saying he's too close to it. He's going to not be impartial. She's aligned uh, somebody to to do this report that has very similar views to herself. Who would have been a better choice, or who do you look for to do something like this if not Preston Manning? Yeah, you. He was fine when you chaired the Fair Deal panel, but he's not fine here. If this is about legislation. And, and what legislative changes need to be made. Preston Manning has a lot of experience in a lot of areas, but he's not a lawyer, and in fact has never served in government. Yes, he's been an MP, uh, but he's never been a cabinet minister, he's never been a premier, he's never been a prime minister, and I'm sorry, being the son of a premier is, in, is not significant enough. You would have needed a wide-ranging panel, not a panel of one, you need, would have needed experts in a wide variety of areas. There would have been um, consultations and hearings and evidence, which I think is still deserving. We need a real account of what went on in COVID and what we did right and what we did wrong, as opposed to looking at only what we did wrong and, and hiring a very strong partisan uh, to do so. It's going to be interesting to see what that report looks like, isn't it? We'll talk about that then, I'm sure. I'd want to just touch on this before we let you go. but Well, yes. and, and it's not just the report, right? He was also working on what he called the National Citizens Inquiry. And in her radio show uh, on your station on Saturday, she said one of the reasons they hired him is because he's already done so much preliminary work on this. <laughs> so... You know, is the conclusion already written, mm-hmm. and it's just a matter of compiling evidence to support that conclusion? Because the preliminary work was all made up. That's the strange thing about it. Yes, yes. Well, I don't know. We're out of time. We could talk about this forever with you. I'm No doubt we will talk again in the future. Thank you so much for your perspective, Dwayne. Appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome, Sue. Thanks. Dwayne Bratt, Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University. Last week we had a conversation and it it was told to us that there are fewer people going into the trades these days. So we thought we'd go to the source and find out what kind of jobs are available and what the numbers are like and if fewer people are actually interested in jobs within the trades. So joining us to talk about it this morning is Jim Zotner, who is the Dean of Trades at SAIT. Good morning to you, Jim. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Would you say, have you seen a decline in people registering for SAIT's trade programs? So where we're sitting uh, right now, actually, is we're on the uh, very early stages of what we're seeing as growth in in the trades. Oh, good. Uh, so what we have seen over the last uh, few years was um, fewer um, 
apprentices sign up as first-year apprentices or entry in, into the trades. And what that means is that creates a four-year cycle where um, when you have fewer engines coming in, then you have fewer junior people who are available uh, upon completion of the program. And what we've seen over the last two years now is an increase in first period registrations uh, to the tune of about uh, increases of year over year, increases of, of about 40%. And what we're starting to see now is those apprentices registering for technical training, getting skilled, getting trained, and being ready to go out there in the workforce and be productive. As Dean of Trades, Jim, let's break down your job because, yes, indeed, you have to have enough seats for the students. You have to have, you know, the qualified instructors. But I would think when you mention these cycles, that you also have to have uh, somewhat of a, uh, you know, fortune teller with you there to see, okay, in three, four years, what uh, industries are going to need employees? Is that part of the process that you and your team go through? Yeah, there certainly is a bit of a uh, crystal ball element to it where you look at uh, what your current year's enrollments are, you look at what current year registrations are, and then you start to make predictions and, and projections of what that looks like year over year um, and, and looking over to the future so that you can better plan what your overall staffing levels look like and, 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 and what we need here at the institution to provide for seats and then to also ensure that we have uh, qualified instructors on hand to teach those apprentices. How would you say the numbers of males um, we sort of relate to the number of females within the programs at SATE? So uh, in, in terms of looking at the programs at, at SATE as an institution, um, we're, we're about a 50-50 gender split. But if, if, if the question is specific to the skilled trades, um, it is certainly um, uh, females are underrepresented by, by quite a wide, uh, wide margin, especially in certain trades in uh, uh, construction, manufacturing, and in the motor power industry. So there is um, definitely a, a need for, for, for more young women to uh, look at the skilled trades that's a viable option and there's many great incentives that are out there for uh, underrepresented groups to enter into the trades there's currently grants available to employers where if they do hire a first uh, a first year apprentice in the construction or manufacturing sector they can actually qualify for a five thousand dollar grant per apprentice as a wage subsidy and if that person's from an underrepresented group that a wage subsidy actually doubles to ten thousand dollars so there certainly is this incentive out there to get more skilled trades people into the trades and then also to uh, make it more accessible for under underrepresented groups. So how, Jim, do you sort of entice women then? Because, you know, I'm going to speak this. I know this is completely wrong, but I think, you know, as a young female, you have the idea, oh, you're always going to be dirty in the trades and you have to, you know, kind of wear a scrubby uniform. And I know those are not the true things, that it's not the truth of, of what the reality is. But how do you get past that and sort of entice women to come in and, and talk about the different trades? Because I'm sure there are, how many trades actually are there out there that you would train for? Yeah, so in the province of, of Alberta, there's about 50 trades that uh, are um, considered uh, designated or, or registered trades within the province. Here at State, we uh, train about 30 of those 50 yeah. trades. And then, you know, to, to make it more enticing for, for young girls, young women to enter the trades is we uh, have many different functions that we do to make them um, more, more approachable. Uh, we have a very highly functioning women in trades and technology group that does a lot of reach out for uh, young girls to get into the trades. We we bring in uh, grade nine girls for uh, give them a, like a day at say a, a, a day in the life if, the, if you will, where they do a number of uh, different trades as like a trade sampler to try and get their you know hand at doing a bit of plumbing, a bit of carpentry, do do some welding, maybe go in and do a little bit of automotive work so that they can actually see themselves doing that work. And then we also have other programming that we do too through our our youth initiatives to um, make the trades more accessible to young girls. 
Let's talk about, you know, where you get your students from, Jim, as far as, you know, perhaps outreach into high schools, because one of the, you know, corners of, of this 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 discussion last week was in the sense that a lot of these students don't know that you can get paid very well mm-hmm. in the trades as compared yeah. to the uh, quote-unquote white-collar job. So can you tell us about that outreach? Yeah, so in, in terms of the outreach, we... Uh, Work with our with with our local uh, high schools, and we 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 work in, with our with our, our local industries to uh, attract people into the trades. So, really, what what it comes down to is a uh, three way partnership between um, the post secondary institution, uh, with um, industry, and then also with our government partners, to really try and and put forward the the, the message of what it means to be a skilled tradesperson, and really um, emphasizing that um, philosophy of the parity of esteem. Uh, coming into a skilled trade is is exactly that. You are a skilled professional. It takes four years to become proficient in any one of the skilled trades. That's on par with what you'd see in a, in a, in a traditional post-secondary environment, like in a in a university. The benefit is is that while you're learning, you're also earning. And apprentices can earn very good wages. Um, as a as a first year apprentice, uh, and then all the way to their junior person status, where you know people are making forty five, sixty dollars an hour uh, once they have that junior person uh, with the red seal endorsement in their back pocket, which means that they now have labor mobility as well. They can work anywhere in the city, anywhere in the province, anywhere in the country, and demand that high wage. Just before we let you go, you mentioned that opportunity to earn while you learn. That's huge. What about the cost involved to, to complete a program compared to a post-secondary institution? So when you look at the uh, traditional apprenticeship path, there is no better value for a student to uh, uh, take their, their post-secondary education. Um, for a typical eight-week um, intake or an eight-week uh, uh, apprenticeship training, uh, it's about $1,000. Uh, while the student is in in school, they will also qualify for employment insurance benefits, so they still earn that employment insurance. And then there's many employers who uh, leverage top-up programs where an actual student is coming to state, attending their class, but still earning their full wage as well. Jim, thanks for the discussion. Hopefully those numbers continue to grow. Something that never goes out of style, that's a job in the trades for sure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. Jim Zotner is the Dean of Trades at SAIT. And for more information or to register, SAIT.ca. It's time for our regular segment that we have here on Mornings with Sue and Andy. It's called Tech Tuesday, and we welcome the gadget guy, Mike Yanni. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Always the coolest tech that you've got to tell us about what's on tap today. Let's, let's talk about trackers, tracking devices. And I think uh, what would come to mind for many people are Apple AirTags. Mm-hmm. Have you guys used them? Do you like them? What do you thought? What do you think? I've never used them. The only thing I'm hearing, you know, more and more about is people who've lost their luggage and use them now to track their luggage when they're flying. Yeah, I actually tried that over the Christmas break. My family and I, we, we went to Mexico for a couple of weeks. It was great. And I put the AirTags in all of our suitcases thinking, I'm going to know exactly where they are. And truth be told, it actually just freaked me out <laughs> because it got off the plane and it says, oh, my daughter's luggage is still in Mexico. Huh. That's really strange. And yet her luggage came off first off the plane. So it really depends on whether it can get a signal or not. And actually just caused more grief, I think, than uh, not using them. But regardless... It looks like we are getting more. Uh, Google is hinting that they are launching their own version of the tracker this spring. So they're not releasing a lot of details about it, uh, but it looks like, uh, especially those people that 
dive into code and different products and things like that. They said they have seen all the telltale signs that a new product is going to be announced. But I think what's going to be interesting is Google's take on this, because, of course, there was a lot of controversy when Apple launched this. People did use them for tracking mm-hmm. others, uh, and, Nefarious you know, they're still doing means. that. Um, Apple did take some some measures to try to correct that, but I think it'll be interesting to see Apple's or sorry, Google's take on this and what they're going to do differently. All right, yeah, well, let's move along from Apple, a name we talk about a lot, and uh, Google, a name we talk a lot, Twitter. Too many ads. If you think you see too many ads as a Twitter user, you're not alone. In fact, the the guy at the top thinks there's too many ads. Yeah, and I agree, 100%. My my feed is just. I feel like it's 80% ads. It's it's out of control. So even Elon Musk on the weekend, he tweeted that, uh, you know, ads are too big, they're too frequent, and something's going to change. And then he hinted at another subscription tier that for $8 a month U.S., you're going to get rid of all the ads. What do you think? I'm Would deleting my it? profile. That's what I'm doing. That's what I think. <laughs> Are you still on Twitter? Do you still use it? <laughs> I, I'm on there, but I don't use it, really. I think I've seen a lot of people say they just don't even bother anymore. Yeah, it, it's kind of fading. I, I still use it, not as much as before. I don't think I'm ready to pay $8 a month, though. Definitely for, no. For, Definitely yeah, no. I, I think it's, yeah. I think it's a losing battle for him. It's a rip for sure. Let's talk about Getty Images. There's a big lawsuit going on here. Oh, I lo- actually, I love this story. Have you guys seen all these AI apps? Especially if you're on uh, social media, you've probably seen them. Uh, there are apps you can download on your phone, and you can just say two words, like Plato and Sudeal. And the app will create what it thinks a Plato version of Sudeal will look like. But where does it come up with the images? I don't know Well, of where. course, these apps, they, they scour the internet and they scrape the internet and they look for all these images and that's what it uses as database. Well, Getty Images is saying, wait a minute. Of course, Getty Images is you know, a high-end uh, photo service. You have to pay to use their images. Well, all these AI apps are scraping the internet using Getty Images to create these really crazy AI photos. And they are crazy. Some of them are really fascinating to see. And there's proof. Because many of these AI-created images have the Getty trademark, mm. the watermark on it. <laughs> so it's obvious that's where they're getting some that's of the funny. images from. And Getty's saying, basically, we want big money up front. Ooh. So, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. Yeah, when it comes to ads in general, uh, Mike, you know, the AI is, is one thing. It's going to grab things. If I, you know, run a small business or if I'm making a fun post, having a birthday party for Sue and I want to put a picture up of, I don't know, somebody, you know, water skiing, how do I, how can I know for sure that I can use that uh, image? Mm. Because the Getty one, that's one thing. If if you've been around tech at all, you know that Getty owns images. Uh, But how do I know that I'm safe and I'm not going to get sued? Take it yourself. (laughs) That's it. Bottom line, I mean, that's the problem. The, the services like Getty, of course, it's the biggest one, but there's there's a ton of these services where you have to pay for for their photos. And the problem is people are able to use Photoshop and they get rid of the, rid of the watermark and they think, oh, well, it's got free because there's no proof that it's from mm-hmm. one of these companies. But these companies really do scour looking for images and they have programs that will scour the net for them looking for copyright violations and they do send out warnings and threaten lawsuits. So... Yeah, a lot of people do that. You're right. And I think you know, if it was for personal, you're probably safe. If it's just your own Facebook or Twitter. But if you were running a company, you were certainly taking a risk. Beware in so many ways. Hey, thanks for joining yeah. us, Mike. My pleasure. That is Mike Yanni, the Gadget Guy on YouTube. You can find his channel searching Gadget Guy Mike Yanni or go online at Gadget Guy Mike.